You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 32. Today, we're asking the question, if safety emerges from frontline work, then what are regulators supposed to do? Let's get started. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and this week we're going to jump straight into our discussion. So, Drew, what's today's question? David, today's question comes out of one of the big gaps in safety theory. So we've got lots of theories that say that in complex operational work, safety is some sort of emergent property that comes out of patterns of interactions between the frontline workers and other things around them, like technology. So we can think of a surgical team that's working together to do a difficult operation, or a line crew repairing downed power lines during a storm, or a flight deck crew helping to land and refuel a fighter jet. And what keeps people safe isn't the individual behaviour or the organisation or even something vague and nebulous like culture. It's the routines that they have that are flexible enough to respond to circumstances, but stable enough not to drift into danger. The word they often use for that comes from HRO theory, and it's called mindful organising. David, do you want to give our listeners just a quick reminder about HRO? Yeah, thanks, Drew. We've spoken a few times on the podcast about HRO, and people might recall episode 16 that we did on the Brady Report uh, regarding the application of HRO or the recommendation to apply HRO in the mining industry. So this idea of mindful organising really seemed to emerge with uh, Carl Weick and Kathleen Sutcliffe as they expanded the HRO theory in the 1990s. And so they talked about this collective mindfulness as emerging out of the out of the five principles of high reliability organization theory. So this wasn't original thinking. Drew, in, in the early 90s, Westrom talked about generative organizations where people have this license to think, where they don't just follow rules and procedures, they actively seek out new information and they inquired deeply when uh, their work circumstances change. He also used terms like this, what he termed a protective envelope of human thought, uh, which w- which people would wrap around their work together. But then Mike and Sutcliffe went on to publish a whole lot of papers on organizing for collective mindfulness. And they define this collective mindfulness as simply the capacity to discover and manage unexpected events. So even even some of this school of thought, Drew, wasn't kind of knew then. So Turner back in the early 1970s talked about work being safe, not because of these orderly systems and processes that people always follow, but work is sometimes safe in spite of these these routines and procedures because work is different every day. And so the problem is that if we accept this as a way of looking at safety, and it sounds like really nice that safety comes from these people who are committed and thinking and spotting problems and fixing problems, what does that leave for the rest of us who aren't doing the frontline work? How do we promote mindful organising? What do our systems look like that encourage mindful organising? What do our safety processes look like? And in particular, what do our regulators look like? Because on the one hand, we've got all this safety theory that says safety comes from great frontline behaviour. But then we've got our management theory that seems to be trending towards thinking that regulators regulate the systems, the systems regulate the work. And so that's a big contradiction. We don't have a good model for what a regular looks like operating under an HRO model of what safety looks like. 
Yeah, and I think, Drew, it becomes very hard as you become removed from frontline work to both understand it and to impact on it in a meaningful and constructive way. And so in the case of regulators, you know, when I was reflecting on on their role is they're only ever getting a snapshot in time view into the work and the workplace um, that they're looking at. So their picture is always going to be, or their, their model of the work is always going to be very, very narrow. Generally, they're, they're always going to be starting by looking at a system or a safety case and then trying to use that to match it to work through inspections and compliance activity, or they're going to be responding to an incident and making some court sort of hindsight-based normative conclusions about the way that work should be done. So when we think about safety emerging from these spontaneous and complex interactions between people on the front line, it becomes very hard to understand how the regulator can A, understand that and B, do something about it. So that's basically our question for today. And the paper we've chosen has that pretty much exactly as its title. So it's called How Institutions Enhance Mindfulness. Interactions between external regulators and frontline operators around safety rules. Uh, It's a very recent paper. It's from 2020. It's from a special issue of the journal Safety Science that was all about mindful organising. And the authors are Ravi Kudesia, Ting Lang, and Jochen Rupp. The first author, Ravi Kudesia, is an early career researcher. He's already got quite a respectful body of work, respectable body of work on the topic of mindfulness. And I got interested in his stuff, actually not because of mindful organizing, but because I was searching for stuff about mindfulness, which I find really interesting. But a lot of the existing work is new agey, ill-defined, not exactly clear what the philosophy is, not exactly clear what the mechanism is. And so I love the fact that Kudesia sort of links mindfulness and mindful organizing. He takes a really strong interdisciplinary approach, and his emphasis is on real-world qualitative investigations. I was expecting that someone who comes from a sort of methodological approach that I like and using qualitative ethnographic methods that I like, I was going to really agree with everything in his paper. But actually, this is one of those ones where you sort of read all the introduction, you read the method, you think, hurrah, you look at some of the data and you think, what the heck is going on? We thought it was only fair that if I agree with the method, we should talk about the paper. Yeah, so Drew, the research was done in an explosive demolitions firm in China. It looked like it was part of a broader project where they were looking at interactions between the frontline operators and the regulators. And the assumption behind this body of research was that, like we said earlier, that the frontline behaviours and interactions are shaped by the bigger system they're part of. And if you can understand the relationship between the regulators and the workers, then you can maybe see some of that shaping in action. So this makes sense from a social theory perspective where we talk about like like Giddens' theory of structuration, where we talk about systems simultaneously both shape behavior and then that that behavior actually shapes the system so we see this constant kind of dynamic between the conditions around work and then how the work feeds back into changing the conditions for the work next time so it makes sense that if a regulator interacts with a worker then work can be shaped differently after that interaction as as has occurred so for our readers who have an opportunity to pick up the paper it has a really good introduction and literature review that it doesn't use a lot of the social theory language. It talks about in very plain, simple safety language, but it presents this idea of sort of mutual shaping um, systems and behaviours. After that, the method is very straightforward. It's something we're quite familiar with. They're doing interviews as their primary form of data collection. 
and then they're doing some observations and document analysis to supplement what they find from the interviews. Uh, David, it's a little bit top-heavy. They interviewed 15 people in total, which is a reasonable number, but they started off interviewing the senior management and then the next layer of management, and by the time they got down to the front line, they actually only interviewed three blast crew and two regulators. And it looks like most of the observational data was from following one of those regulators around and talking to them. Yeah, Drew, I think um, we spoke about this in one of our earlier episodes about, you know, why people break rules. I think it was even episode two where, you know, sometimes you need to start with with interviewing management to get a, a bigger picture of the organization, the context, the workforce, the regulatory environment. So that makes sense. And they actually spoke about trying to understand these complex interactions because of where the research was done in China, it appeared as though the city level regulators interacted with management and those city level regulators controlled town level regulators and those town level regulators were the ones that went out onto site and integrate and interacted with the operators. So they're actually trying to understand these interactions at a company type level and at at a site type level, but it did get pretty thin pretty quickly. So 15 interviews is, is okay for a case study. But because they actually had quite a lot of different levels of interactions, you're right, it was it was pretty thin on the ground for what we're interested in, which is kind of the operator level interaction with, with regulators. And I might also say here, Drew, as we go forward for the rest of the podcast, I was reflecting on some of our listeners who, who probably aren't in China. And I don't know what all the other countries around the world are like, but at least in Australia, frontline operators do not have very many interactions with regulators. In fact, some in their entire career may never see a regulator. Some would only see them once a year, maybe for inspection activities. So I also thought as I read through this study, you can sometimes substitute thinking about the regulator with actually the safety professional. So just for our listeners who go, well, our our operators don't ever interact directly with the regulators. Just think about how your operators might directly interact with your your safety organization. And, And I think some of these um, these findings apply. Yeah, I, I think that's a fairly fair model. I, w- I was trying to in- interpret how much of this was down to national culture and how much of it was down to the research itself. And it certainly appears that in this situation, the primary regulator, so the um, government regulator is the police in this case, and they very often have police coming onto site. But then the people we're talking about now as the regulators don't appear to be independent government employees. They appear to be employed by the organisation. And sometimes the police come and sometimes the police just check in with the company's own regulators in order to see what's going on. And it seems to be a sort of risk-informed. So the more the police trust the regulator, the company employed safety professional, the less the police come, the less they trust the company to regulate itself, the more they use police as the regulators. So, Drew, at this juncture in, in the paper, we've talked about mindful organising and HRO, and then and now we're talking about regulation and police, which takes us to rules and compliance. So, this was kind of where the paper, I must admit, I got to this point in the paper, and I asked you before the podcast, I said, I got lost in what the researchers were, were trying to do, whether they were looking at rules and rule enforcement and the application of rules to work or whether they were still trying to understand mindful organising. What was your take on sort of the way that the paper, maybe I'll just ask you the question that I asked you before is, you know, I got lost in what the research question that the researchers were trying to answer was. So I don't like to assume that I know what's going on inside a research team unless I've had a chance to speak directly to the people involved. 
But these are people across different countries, and we don't know what the relationship was when the paper started, when the data was collected, when they realised that, hey, there's a special issue on mindfulness coming up. Maybe we can take some of this data and publish it as a mindful organising paper. But there seems to be certainly a real disconnect between the layer of data collection, which is very straightforward, naive, asking people about rules, and then this separate layer of analysis that reinterprets the data that they have using the theory of mindful organising. And so regardless of what actually happened, I think that's a fairly useful way to track the paper, is to start with this first bit about rules as like straightforward presentation of the data, and then we'll go into like a phase two, which is how would we reinterpret this data using a theory of mindful organising. Thank you. I think that was useful context because we are just about now to go and talk a little bit, talk about rules for a minute. And I didn't want our listeners to get lost in, I thought I was going to be talking about mindful organising and now you're talking about rules, but I promise we'll we'll bring it back around before the end of the episode. So Drew, do you want to talk about this, this about the rules and how they talked about the four different key activities around rules and because I, I actually don't mind some of that, even if it's not in the context of mindful organising. So this stuff is fairly heavily supported by data and direct quotes from their participants. And it presents a model where the regulators are in charge of the rules, the blast crews are in charge of the activities, and it's less that the regulator's job is to create and enforce rules, and more that rules are this framework of understanding that flows back and forth between the regulators and the people doing the work in order to keep the rules always in the front of people's minds. So they talk about four key activities, and we'll explain each of these. And they've labelled them as encoding, reinforcing, reinstating, and learning. And for each activity, you sort of got to consider two things. One of them is how much people understand the rule and know what the rule is. And the other is salience, how much the rule is in the very front of people's minds. And so the regulator's job is both to make sure that people understand the rule, but also to make sure that they're thinking hard about the rule. So the first process in coding, this is how the operators first encounter the rules. So when you first become a junior blast crew operator, a junior blast crew engineer, you've got to know what the rules are. So you go through a formal set of training, and then you get assessed on whether you understand the rule. And so this is just mainly about content, transmitting from one person's brain to another to make sure that everyone knows what the rules are. You know, that's really just about explaining to people how their work should happen. So all things being equal, this is how work should, should occur. Yeah, precisely. And, and then reinforcing is about checking up on people once they've started work to make sure that they follow the rules. And so this has got both content and salience. You can't guarantee that someone comes out of training always knowing exactly what they're supposed to do, particularly if they haven't done the work before, they haven't encountered the real-world context. But also, you immediately get this counter-pressure after you come out of training about what the work is actually like. And so reinforces is, is making sure that as people experience other pressures of time and clients and different ways of doing things, that they still keep thinking about the rules that they were trained in. Of course, sometimes that doesn't work, the rules get broken, and there's got to be a process for reinstating, putting those rules back into place. There's a big emphasis in the paper, David, about punishment and about this idea that reinstating is not just about like correcting people, but also about escalating the consequences of doing things wrong. Yeah, and I think, Drew, some of this is, might be down to the case study um, and the cultural context of the research being conducted in China. I mean, we know 
the cultural context there is very hierarchical. It's it, it's it's rule driven, um, and and so asking general questions about safety and rules, it didn't surprise me at all that there was that this idea of reinstating was more orientated towards punishment and and escalation than maybe to understanding and and learning and you know other approaches to reinstating that might be more typical in other organizations potentially or other cultural contexts. Yeah, although I think we should need to be a little bit careful, even though they've translated it as punishment, and I'm not an expert on Chinese culture, but it's clear from the data in this paper that matches other stories that I've been told, is that they have a very restorative approach to punishing people. So when we talk about uh, punishing someone from an incident, it'll be doing something like writing a letter of apology to everyone in the organization or going in front of a big safety meeting of everyone on site and saying, I stuffed up. And then after that, you're just sort of back to normal. So you know, you've, you've done your penance, you've admitted your fault, you've apologized to everyone else, and then you're just restored back to your position. So it's um, very much about sort of taking, forcing, forcing people to take individual responsibility for what's gone wrong. And then after that, there don't seem to be lasting consequences. And the fourth area then is about learning. Drew, which we sort of just touched on them, but it is it is after the the reinstating phase, which is about improving the rules themselves. So the authors in this paper suggest that that's about adapting and refining the rules based on operational knowledge. So what some of us might think about is looking at work as done and and operators' experience, and then feeding that back into improve you know the rules for work going forward. And th- this is the point where I began to suspect that there are really two stories going on in this paper. Because we've got the voice of the first author saying that learning is about the regulators learning. You, The regulators actually finding out what's wrong with the rules and changing the rules and adapting the rules where they don't fit the organisation. But you look at the quotes in the paper and the quotes are about the police reading books about blasting and asking questions of the operators while referring to the books. And if the operators can't give the correct answer that's in the book that the police have just discovered, then there are consequences. And that's a very different sort of learning. And so, you know, we've got this sort of theory being, I think, superimposed on some data, which has a very much more blunt view of what learning is. So, Drew, because we've got these two stories, like you said, running through this paper, one about rules and rule compliance, and then one about uh, mindful organising it gives us a good opportunity to talk about these two these two different views sort of mixed up in the one paper. So there's a quote there that you've pulled out. Do you want to just talk to that? Yeah, I'd like to read the quote directly. This is like the transition point in the paper between rules and organisation mindfulness. And it goes like this. To even enter the operational realm, both literally through certification checking and more abstractly in terms of their competence, initially operators must learn and follow the rules. But to function effectively as operators, they can't mindlessly follow the rules because the rules are sometimes irrelevant or unhelpful, leading to necessary violations. But not all violations are of this type. Because of the physical intensity of this work, some violations reflect failures in self-regulation and dangerous shortcuts. So this reveals a system in which regulators neither possess the wisdom to craft perfect rules nor do operators possess the expertise and single-minded dedication to safety to not need rules. That sort of presents a binary, but I think sometimes we think that it's just like a choice between one of these things. You can either be a new view person who think that regulators don't have the wisdom to craft perfect rules, or you can be an old view person who think that operators don't possess the dedication to not follow safety rules. 
Um, David, your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think that's a, I mean, that's a really well-written paragraph and I think it explains kind of the messy middle, which is where we're always going to live. Like you say, Drew, you know, we're never going to have perfect rules, but we're also never going to have a situation where our workers have sufficient experience and perfect system level information to always know how to make, um, you know, the best decision in the interest of their work and safety. So we are today and we're always going to be, in my opinion, in this messy middle and, you know, these paradoxes that we spoke about in episode 30, where we actually need people to display dependable role performance, which is like rule following, which is uh, routines and, and reliability so that we can integrate our organization and we know how people are doing their job. And we know that that's never going to be, that's never going to work in all situations. So we need people to demonstrate this spontaneous initiative, this adaptability. And that's really this, this, this central theme of collective, of mindful organizing or collective mindfulness, which is that we can do our work as planned. And then we're going to be able to tell when we need to deviate the plan and we're going to be able to correct and, and maintain our operational performance uh, before it's too late. And I think in that is that's, always going to be a case-by-case case kind of situational specific thing. And that's probably our biggest central challenge, in my opinion, Drew, for, for safety management is how do you create the conditions to get those decisions made well uh, in your organisation? And the, the argument that the rest of the paper makes that we're going to go through now is that you have to have some sort of regulatory force for the collective mindfulness, the collective organisation to happen. You can't just go totally hands off because then there's a strong risk of drift towards op optimizing for properties other than safety. So let's just go back through those four steps of rules as the paper does and reinterpret them in terms of mindfulness. So if you start at the encoding stage, your very naive move is that this is very top down. The regulators are making the rules and, oh, before we can let people work, we need to teach them what the rules are and make sure that they understand them. And it certainly seems to violate the principle of deference to frontline expertise. But when you think about it, how do frontline experts get to become experts in the first place? They don't just you know, magically know what is safe, particularly when they're starting off as junior people, when they're not experts yet. And so the paper's argument is sure a lot of the stuff that they need to know they're going to learn from other expert frontline operators. They're going to learn from doing and they're going to learn from being around the people who are the experts. But they've got to start off with something. And the something that they need to start off with is that form of encoded institutional knowledge. And that's basically what rules are, is that, you know, encoding as much as we can into simple things that people can learn. And that gives people a good framework to start off with so that they're building their knowledge based on this framework. Yeah, Drew, I, I, I like that. I've actually, like I mentioned, I've been reading more of the HRO literature recently. And when that theory talks about deference to expertise, it actually says that expertise rarely resides in one person. It resides, you know, between people and, and, and in groups of people. So in this situation, I kind of said, well, you know, it's not deference to frontline expertise, it's deference to expertise. And that sits across the institutional knowledge, which could be delivered in the form of trainers of, of new people and then also experienced operators. So I think thinking about that that expertise as sitting across both the institution and experienced individuals is a good way to think about it. And you can certainly imagine sort of two totally different models of training, one model of training which has no deference to that expertise, which is basically people taking the rules out of the textbooks and trying to train people with them. 
And the other is the organisation and the regulators capturing the knowledge that exists between people and in the existing systems and turning that into a simplified, codified form that they can teach the new people with. I remember, Drew, we did some work at one point with um, induction, safety induction training, and we had taken a lot of care as sort of on this regulatory regulatory role, if you think about safety professionals, to design what we thought was the perfect induction training. And so we took it to we took it to a group of experienced operators and said, you know, this is what the safety induction training is going to look like. And the collective feedback was, I won't say what the feedback was, or we'll have to put a little E symbol on the episode, but um, it was essentially a score of about one out of 10 said, nothing that you are going to tell people in that course is, is going to be useful for them to actually do their job safely. And then we went through this process with experienced operators of completely redesigning the safety induction training for that particular site through the lens of the experienced operators. And I think that's you know, an example of what we're talking about here is, you know, what's the relationship between your institutional knowledge or your rule set and your experienced operators? Yeah, I'm not going to give details here, but there was a set of inductions we were looking at on one of our projects that got mixed scores. And the mix was pretty much 50%. 50% of the induction was focusing on some particular hand signals for moving vehicles and loads around on site. And those hand signals, people loved having those in the induction, making sure that everyone knew how to tell a spotter and for a spotter to communicate back to the person with the vehicle. And the other 50% was company standard information, which people hated because they just thought it was useless and repetitive. And that just shows that you know the induction was absolutely necessary. You definitely want when the, hand sig- when the spotter is you know, desperately pumping a signal for the person to recognize what the signal is. Um, that sort of standardization coordination is important for new people on site. So let's move on to reinforcement. Um, And again, we start sort of reframing this idea of blind reinforcement of the rules into a more HRO idea that operators are always making a trade-off between safety and productivity. And the problem is that productivity always has a visible presence. You have an obvious sign how fast the work is going and how much you're getting done. You've often actually got physically a client or at least personified a client that you can point to and say the client wants this or the client can speak for themselves and say what they want. Whereas safety is more nebulous unless you have a regulator. And then the regulator or the safety guy creates this visible presence and this real person that represents the safety goal. And so that sort of levels the playing field between productivity and safety. They're not just competing abstract forces, they're, voice, they're forces that have a voice and a person and a physical presence on site. Yeah, I, I like the way that, that that's more of a, um, a reflection, not just on reinforcing at an individual operator level, the rule and the compliance to the rule, but it's reinforcing kind of like system properties that, uh, that create conditions for people, the rule salience and, and also, you know, the, the rule compliance. And so, David, I don't know what you think about this next one about reinstating. I really think this one didn't fit at all. And it was a real stretch to try to say that the reinstating was um, mindful organising. That They tried to say that, okay, one of the HRO properties is focusing on failure and not just treating problems as local, but treating them as potentially representative of things wrong with the system that needs to be corrected, which yeah, is, is sure very HRO type language and stuff. But none of the examples in this particular paper actually involved correcting problems in the system or the organisation. 
Um, all the examples were someone makes a mistake and we make sure that everyone else on site knows about it in case they're having similar problems, which is less about correcting systems and more just about making sure people are aware of the potential for error. Yeah, look, I don't think this matches the HRO principles, the way that they talk about reinstating the rules. I mean, um, reluctance to simplify one of the HRO principles um, would talk about going deeply into the system to understand it. And clearly that wasn't really what the quotes demonstrated and nor did they really demonstrate any sort of commitment to resilience, which is one of the other HRO principles that would normally fit in this sort of space. So I think this was just um, this was just about dealing with non-compliance at the rule and the operator kind of level. So, and I, I think here at the end of the paper, Drew, they didn't even go back to the fourth uh, element of learning um, and what and, and how that might kind of kind of fit. So. I think these two stories kind of hit a bit of a bit of a dead end at the end of the paper where the, they didn't really quite get reconciled how they needed to. So that's probably a good point then to start shifting on to what we think about it and practical takeaways. So if we take the overall message of the paper as looking at this interaction between regulators and frontline workers, something that is mainly about using the language of rules for the interactions, at your training about the rules, reinforcing the rules, finding and correcting when the rules don't get followed. And then we look at that in an HRO context and say, like, how does this help people have this collective mindful organising? What can we learn if we're in an organisation that is trying to have mindful organising or thinks that we have mindful organising, but also feels a need to have this regulation as well? What can we learn about how to make that regulation fit in with the mindful organising approach, David? So, Drew, I think organisations need to think about you know, what they're actually doing to create the conditions for mindful organising. So there's a few practical ways that I thought we could think about this. And um, the first one was, you know, when we think about regulators or like we've said, when we think about safety professionals, you know, maybe needing to be present in the operation to keep that physical representation of the safety goal and, and look at work and operations through the safety lens. I think we need to think about how often our safety organisation interacts directly with frontline workers. I think at least in my research, there's been some drift for, for the safety organisation to only interact at the line management level down to the supervisor and, and really leave then the interaction with the frontline workers to be done you know, by the supervisor. And you know, that, that can create a confused kind of presence with the safety message and the and the production message, particularly if there's some strong production conditions in that organization. So one of the things that you know I've been reflecting on, and I think this this paper would strongly suggest, is that safety organizations need to be observing and interacting with the frontline workers to understand their work and to balance these messages that the workers are getting. Well, one thing that I took away that I've been thinking a lot about recently is that there's really no obligation to be a purist in your safety philosophy and to just grab hold of a view of safety and have to interpret everything through that lens. In particular, it doesn't mean you have to decide that you know, you're going to abandon a position where all problems are human error and pretend that people never take shortcuts. You know, I think a lot of people who are in a new view of safety feel almost obliged to deny the fact that people make mistakes and actually you know, like do actively go out and do things that they would say themselves that they shouldn't do. You know, the reality is that most people are much better at self-regulation than a lot of us admit. You know, most people can be trusted just to get on with the job and do it safely, but we are all better at regulating ourselves when there's some degree of accountability. You know, I am happy being left to get my work done, but I would actually like my supervisor to check in and make sure I'm making progress every now and then. 
I would like to be checked up on to make sure that I'm you know, teaching well and not getting slack in the way that I'm teaching. And I think everyone does a little bit better with some of that checking up to help them self-regulate. Yeah, there was a, actually a, a more recent paper that uh, Carl Weick was a was a last author of, I think in 2015, that talked about two other, I suppose, traits of organisations for mindful organising. One was pro-social motivation and one was emotional ambivalence. And what you've just spoken about, Drew, there is this idea of pro-social motivation, which is my commitment to others and others' commitment to me. And where there is these these shared commitments around safety and and that there's more likely to be mindful organising between people. And getting that balance right is really, really hard because you check up on people too much and they lose their individual motivation and they just feel that you feel checked up on too much. And, and so it's something that anyone who's doing management or supervision can't take for granted and has to be constantly working at and reflecting on how well they're doing. Am I getting the balance right between letting my people just go ahead and do stuff and making sure that I am sending messages that I am providing that regulation function? So do you have a, do you have a, a final practical takeaway then? The other takeaway would be then for regulators. I, I think regulators sometimes feel a bit bound by their framework of their jobs. And one thing this paper shows is that even if you're in a position where your job is explicitly about rules, it's about making rules, teaching rules, enforcing rules, that doesn't mean you can't have a progressive view of safety and interpret and improve your own work using that progressive view. So Drew, other thing, so an invitation that I'd have to our listeners and things I'd like to know, which is we've talked a lot all the way through this episode about the paradox, the balance, the trade-off between rules and rule following and organizing for um, mindful organizing or organizing for collective mindfulness. And I'd love to know if any of our listeners have as part of their safety management program work happening to explicitly try to work on this balance or, or like you said, Drew, like an um, intentional action to try to promote mindful organizing. You know, I, I'd love to hear about, you know, what you're doing, how you're doing that and how you're measuring and monitoring the impact that it's having. That's a great question, David. I'd be very interested in the answers our listeners have. So the question for this episode was, if safety emerges from frontline work, then what are regulators supposed to do? At the end of the paper, David, what do you think the answer is? Well, look, I think I'm going to give you maybe my, my thoughts because I think at the end of the end of the paper, this is reasonably consistent with what's in the paper, but regulators need to understand the work and then they need to understand the risks associated with the work and then work back from that to match that to the framework and the rules that they apply. And I suppose from there, the role of the regulators is to try to understand whether or not there's a there's any sort of agreement and alignment around whether the risk that the the operators are facing is acceptable or not. And that may match a, a rule or a regulatory framework, or it may not. Um, or the activity may deviate from a rule, but if it doesn't create a risk, then you know that needs to be part of the, the regulator's mindset to be flexible around its rules. Because ultimately, I think regulators want what organizations should want, which is you know risk being managed and people not being hurt. Thanks, David. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and useful in shaping the safety of work for yourself and your own organisation. As always, you can contact either of us on LinkedIn or you can send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 